Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and this is LPO Offstage. We're back again chatting with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and getting to the centre of their musical world. However, today we're straddling continents as we're crossing the Atlantic to New York and heading to Berlin too. I'm going to be digging deep into the musical life of not just LPO bass player Sebastian Pennar, but also the New York Philharmonic horn player Leelani Sterrett and viola player in the Berlin Philharmonic Matthew Hunter. I'm very much hoping they're all here. How are you, everyone? Great. Very good. Hello. <laughs> great. Hi. Oh, it's great to have you here. Quick fire question to start off. Could you sum up your orchestra in three words? Matthew, I'm going to come to you first. Oh, that's tough. Beer und Bratwurst. <laughs> <laughs> Lilini, how would you describe your orchestra? Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, I'm going to piggyback on Matthew. We are loud and proud. Oh, I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sebastian, what about the London Philharmonic? I can't compete with that sort of level of poetry, but um, I'd say friendly, flexible, and um, sporty. Oh, I've heard about Glyndebourne. Yes, this is also true. <laughs> I have the feeling the string players are not going to like, in, in the Philharmonic, they're not going to like my answer. But <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Leelani, I don't know, what time is it in New York right now? It's about 8.30 this morning. Oh, so not too early. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's early enough for a musician. It yes. sure is early. <laughs> what would be, I guess, the main thing that a philharmonic orchestra plays? What's the continuous thread that links you all? Leelani, can you tell me? Well, I think it's really our repertoire, right? Just the breadth of it and the historical depth of what we're playing. I was thinking about this because we're all members of a, a philharmonic and, and we often get asked, well, what's the difference between a philharmonic and an orchestra and a symphony? And there isn't really a difference, right? It's all sort of referring to that symphonic canon. But I think it's really the scale mm -hmm. of the ensemble, right? And the variety that we're able to play when it comes to music because of how big we are. Where were you born? Where's your family based? Did you have to move far to be at the New York Philharmonic? I was born in Michigan, so I'm a Midwesterner, kind of middle of the country. I did my schooling in Wisconsin, which is a state next door. And then I, I moved to the East Coast to do graduate work and found myself in New York eventually, very luckily, and, and I love being in New York. Oh, brilliant. Matthew, I did hear a hint of an accent similar to Leelani there. So what was your journey <laughs> to get to Berlin? Well, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, so very East Coast. At one point, I studied in St. Louis, Missouri, so getting a little closer, yeah. and I was in Columbus, Ohio for five years. That was my first position. And then I was in the Canadian National Orchestra for five years in Ottawa. So I would say my accent is a mixed bag. Yeah, absolutely. Because then it got freeze-dried when I moved to Berlin. <laughs> and so it was from then Canada to Berlin, and that's where you've been ever since? Yeah, 25 years ago, I moved wow. to Berlin. So. Oh, fantastic. And, and yourself, sir, what was your journey to the London Philharmonic? I'm from Cardiff, so not that you can detect that from my, uh, my accent. I think there's a nightclub in Cardiff called the Philharmonic. So, you know, it's there's all... There's a link. Um, there's a link. That's the link there. Um, yeah, so I was raised in Cardiff and then I went to study in London and freelanced after I finished college. And then I briefly got a job back in uh, my hometown with the uh, BBC National Orchestra of Wales, but I was only there for about four months and then I came back and to start working with the LPO. 
I wanted to speak about the homes of your orchestras. And I'm really taken with the home of the Berlin Philharmonic. Matthew, what is it like turning up to work in a building so beautiful? You know, it's a very inspiring place to play. And it's completely changed my idea of what a, a concert hall can be. The main difference is that the, the music, the orchestra, all of what's happening, the energy is focused geographically in the center of the hall. Yes. It's to the point where, depending on where you're sitting, you're not really sure if people in the block of seats behind you are reading your part <laughs> yeah. over your shoulder. Double checking. It, theoretically, it's possible. <laughs> but um, I remember the first concert I ever heard in the hall, I was in the back with my back to the, to the furthest wall from the stage. And Cecilia Bartoli was singing. And she sounded like she was miked. No way. I mean, I could not believe the clarity of the sound and the way the sound transmitted in such a natural and organic way. Yeah. I really love the sound of our hall. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, I'm a member now of the Digital Concert Hall of the Berlin Filmwork. I absolutely love watching the performances. You feel so close. I think that is one of one of the pluses that has come out of these uh, sort of virtual concerts. But um, I remember seeing uh, an audience member right behind the percussionist and he, he could see that the percussionist cymbals were getting ready to be clashed and yeah. he had his hand, hands over his ears, you know. <laughs> so you really are that close, up close and personal with the orchestra, which must be an amazing experience. Sometimes there is a little too much information. (laughs) (laughs) Lilani, tell me about the David Geffen Hall. It is world-renowned. What's it like to turn up for work there? My very favorite thing about the hall is actually its setting as part of Lincoln Center in New York, which is sort of our, um, aside from Carnegie Hall, which is just a couple blocks downtown. It's kind of the, the, the musical heart of Manhattan and of all of New York City. But walking up to work gets me every time, honestly. It's like you, you walk it and you see the plaza and, you know, there's this beautiful fountain. To the left, you have New York City Ballet and the orchestra there. At the back of the plaza is the Metropolitan Opera. And then we at the Philharmonic on the, on the right-hand side in David Geffen. Hall. It's a little bit interesting right now because Geffen Hall and and prior to that it was Avery Fisher Hall and prior to that Philharmonic Hall. It's uh, always been sort of the the problem venue (laughs) as far as the acoustics. And, Ah. you know, we're used to it because it's our home. And actually right now we've just begun a, a pretty massive renovation, which will be hopefully completed in fall 2022. So we're finally going to hopefully fix <laughs> fix oh, the hall. Wow. But we're actually going to follow more of the model like you see in Berlin. We're going to pull the stage forward. What we have now is a very common sort of shoebox style where you have the proscenium arch above the stage, really dividing the audience from the stage. And what we're going to do is pull the stage forward into the hall, wrap the seating around and kind of create a more organic flow and and hopefully a really improved acoustic. So that's actually starting right now as we speak and is scheduled to take about the next year. What do you imagine that the acoustic difference will be when you get your French horn back into that hall? I think we'll be able to hear each other, truly, (laughs) which is something we struggle with in the current hall. And I know that um, all the lower instruments are very excited because we've been assured that we're going to have really, really uh, great bass frequencies and great transmission through improved flooring and all these things in the hall. So. 
Yes, we're all we're all very excited. Great news! I can yes. see Seb nodding there. He's like, I can't wait to get over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is life like as a musician within your orchestras? And um, recently, we spoke about what is it like to work here in the UK. And I have an understanding that it's quite a grueling schedule. Do you feel that, Sebastian? That in terms of the rehearsals and how much there is going on, is it quite an intense experience being a musician in the LPO? pre-pandemic it can be quite full-on you sort of you know if you're touring abroad you'll sort of have a concert in London and that concert will finish about 10 30 and then you have to get up at five to get to Gatwick airport in order to go and perform in Hamburg with a rehearsal beforehand on a different instrument often and and then you've got a sort of week of touring and then you come back and you've got to do sort of education work in one place and rehearsal for another concert yeah so it's quite it can be quite full-on but it, it's great uh, I love it does this feel familiar Lilani I can see you nodding like, yes, yes that feels right, <laughs> that feels familiar, about right. Yeah. what does your a normal day pre-pandemic feel like in in the orchestra also quite busy we have a very very full season you know we take about six weeks off total in the year and aside from that it's really full on and the minimum is about three concerts every week and maximum we'll sometimes do five normally if we have any educational programming or chamber music it's happening concurrently we're always in the same place for the most part unless we're on tour which which is nice it brings a little a little bit of stability but we definitely pride ourselves I think uh, on working hard and I remember as a younger player and when I was first in the orchestra, I mean, just to keep up week to week with all the repertoire and just to manage it. It was more than a more than a full time job, but I also really, really loved it. Uh, How is it for you, Matthew? Do you recognize that kind of schedule and work experience? I think the pre-COVID schedule for me, the the pre-pandemic schedule was just pandemonium. (laughs) And I think we're our own worst enemies there. But musicians are people who want to be doing more. No matter how much you're doing, we're the busy person that you ask when you want something to get done. And in my case, I have ensembles that I perform with. I'm a member of the Berlin Philharmonic Piano Quartet and the Berlin Philharmonic Stradivari Soloists and uh, several other string sextet. And we try to manage tours within the season, which means that we're taking personal weeks free and then going on tour to anywhere in the world. But of course, that means that in the weeks preceding going on tour, we add chamber music rehearsals to all the other schedules that we're following. And some colleagues are teaching at one of the two conservatories in the city. Because of our orchestral structure, we have meetings that uh, we need to attend to and auditions. Every member of the orchestra attends all of the auditions. So that adds a substantial amount to our, our annual schedule. When you say auditions, is that auditions of people coming in? Yes. I see. Or for the academy, the Herbert von Karajan Academy. So, I mean, taken all together, it works out to be an enormous workload. And does the orchestra like to socialise together? Do you meet after concerts? Uh, You know, go to the pub afterwards? Is that something that you do? Yeah, being a brass player, of course, I have to. It's part of the job description, so. Obligatory. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I would say uh, certainly when we're on tour, to a lesser extent in town, but we do spend a lot of time together outside of work, and some of my closest friends are in the orchestra, yeah. Oh, lovely. So how do you feel about, about touring? 
Do you feel that there's time to sort of take a moment and breathe or is the schedule still quite intense? Well, it depends on the conductor, I guess. Some some conductors really um, insist on carrying on like a full three-hour rehearsal before the concert, which I don't want to get myself in <laughs> hot water. But obviously you would prefer to have more time to sort of get over the travelling and experiences whatever city you're in. I have to ask you, what bus are you on when you're when you're touring? I knew you were going to ask that uh, question. Yes. And this is this is like a huge <laughs> secret. I'm definitely going to get in trouble now. So, right, there's bus one, two and three on tour. Yes. Have you already discussed this on... Well, we have had our episode previous. about touring, so I, I want to know if you're in bus three. You sound like a, a happy-go-lucky kind of person. <laughs> I, strike, I, I strike the happy medium and I try and go for bus two. Ah, nice. Which is, I think, the, the most relaxed, cool bus. Bus one is... Boring. And bus three is there's uh, there's too much going on there, <laughs> too many brass players. <laughs> this is why I'll be on bus I, three. I, 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 I won't be allowed on bus three anymore now. So I do occasionally like going on bus three because the songs are, are great. <laughs> It can get a bit raucous on bus three. That's all I would say. <laughs> this is what I've learned. Do you have that similar kind of um, culture within within your orchestra, Matthew? Especially, I guess, on tour. Well, in the first place, we have four buses. Oh well, hello. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't want to know what bus four is like. Is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, den, den of iniquity. <laughs> um, I would say I'm very much a bus one person. Yes. I love to just have the time to write and to read, and to think, or to sleep. Because if, if I'm sitting in a bus, I'm really just marking the time until I can get somewhere and do something. Yes. You know, when I go to London, you know, I have my spots that I hit in London. And, uh, you know, the picture galleries, and I reserve my energy for that. And the bus is the place where I'm sort of just, you know, charging my battery or, or saving energy. But there are still those buses where people will be playing games and singing songs. We, we don't divide that way. We really oh, don't. We don't have that structure. What, what happens with us, if we are on a bus, and we're usually on a train, we're going to be divided by which hotels we're in. Right. You know, so there's this, this bus going to that hotel and this bus going to another hotel. Lilani, do you have that sort of grouping within the orchestra there? Generally, like within our orchestra, we, we sometimes have four buses. It'll depend on how many people are coming and, uh -huh. and also how many family members and guests are coming. So they always ask that you go with your guest on the last bus just for timing things. So then we uh -huh. end up with a lot of people who all want to go on the last bus because they want to hang out with the kids and <laughs> hang out with the friends who are who are along on tour. So we end up getting people, can you please go on bus three? Can you please go? You know, we, we're out of room on, on bus four where everybody is kind of more, more sociable. And actually, when we're going from like the hotel to the venue, our bus numbers are according to departure time. So those who like to uh -huh. arrive early to the hall always go on bus one. So a lot of brass players, percussionists, our librarians, and then we have sort of staggered departures from the hotel. And I, I know sometimes on, on tour, you know, um, the, I remember one time we were we were playing in a brand new hall out in China. We were doing a run out from Shanghai and we had an hour long bus ride and bus one left very early but got lost on the way. Uh -oh. So it actually ended up being the final bus to arrive and, and 
just the the indignation among the musicians. But I was on bus one, <laughs> and I got here last. You know, so <laughs> it's kind of that. You know, people are very particular about those things, especially on tour. So I'm feeling yeah. commonality here. I'm totally yeah, feeling, feeling commonality. Some commonality. Yeah, this is nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of interested in the entry into the orchestra, the audition process, how much time you you have to endure before you finally get your chair. What's the audition process like in Berlin, Matthew? In contrast to the other orchestras, um, every member of the orchestra is taking part in, in listening to the final round. And everyone, including the conductor, gets just one vote. Right. So the final audition consists of the candidate performing with piano accompaniment in our hall, a concerto, and the most recent audition we just let them play for 15 minutes. We didn't stop anyone. Just play. And it sometimes can be a very long discussion. And then there's there's a vote. And to get offered a position, there has to be a majority plus one. Right. And then having gotten the offer of a position, then the tenure period is two years. And at the end of the tenure period, you have to have two-thirds plus one. Wow. Then the job becomes permanent. Does it ever happen that you nearly get a two-thirds vote, but not quite, and then you just have to go? Is that? That's right. Is that? Yeah. Wow. Sometimes the vote comes down to literally one vote difference. Yeah. And then if someone says, well, you know, we need to recount, we actually had a process called the Hammelsprung, which means that everyone leaves their seats and the people who are for go on one side of the hall. People Whoa. who are on against go on the other side. Oh my so that, so I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, what an experience! That's, that's the Dude, most ex- that's the most extreme case. Of course, mm. um, the, the vote for a final tenure vote is done in writing. Mm. It's by secret ballot. Wow, how does this sound, Lilini? Is this does this sound grueling? How was the audition process for the New York Phil? It sounds grueling. It also sounds terrifying. I think of my own audition process and then I think about what if it had meant playing it for the full Berlin Philharmonic or the the full New York Philharmonic in my case. But our process is different. Um, We have a small committee basically representing the orchestra through the whole process from the preliminary rounds all the way through the tenure vote, actually. So it'll be generally nine to 12 people who are listening and it's very much round based. So there's generally a preliminary that's very open in our case. We try to hear everybody who wants to do an audition. And we recently expanded our audition protocols to allow for both live auditions and recorded prelims. Both are prelims. There's no sort of a pre-screening round or anything like that. So we try to make it possible for everybody who who sends a resume to audition and we hear them play the same quite brief list of excerpts. And I think maybe this is different to, to Berlin, and I don't know about LPO, Seb, but I mean, we are very, very heavy towards the orchestral excerpts versus like a solo for your instrument. And really, we'd probably go through about three rounds before getting to, or two rounds before getting to a final round. And when you're down to that point, maybe only a handful of people, two, three or four or five people, when you would play some solo repertoire with a pianist. And it's really only in the final round that the music director is in the picture. And similar to the other orchestras, I think, we, we have a probationary year, in our, or well, not a year, it's 18 months, actually. Mm. At the end of that time, the same audition committee 
who heard you and all the members of your section, we, we do a vote for tenure. So, and you'd need a majority to pass there. We have covered this kind of idea of this probationary period, and I understand it, but I still can't get my head wrapped around what happens about the person's personal life. For example, Matthew, you've left America or Canada at the time to go over to Berlin. Then say you pass your audition, you've got a two-year probationary period, and then they say, oh, sorry, but no, we can't offer you the chair. What happens to your life and what is your life like during those two years? Do you feel you can commit to things? Do you feel you're on tender hooks? What is it like? You know, I suppose that if I had thought at any stage that I wasn't going to pass, mm. I should never have made the trip. Right. Because, you know, I, I had a, a wonderful situation in Ottawa. It was a wonderful orchestra, beautiful city. I had a nice house. Everything was was settled. It was what I was looking for. Yeah. And then I wasn't planning on winning this job. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even entertain the thought that I wouldn't pass the tenure. So what made you go for it then, if you were in your sort of comfortable space? I think I felt musically at home. Right. My teacher was a Berlin Jew, and his family fled Berlin in the mid to late 30s to Argentina. And when I was eight years old, he landed as a, as a world-class soloist in our little town of Amherst, Massachusetts, where he started a professorship. And there I was, you know, seven or eight years old, showing up for lessons with Julian Olewski. And Julian, you know, he, he was a Berliner. And his cousin was a concertmaster of the Berlin Philharmonic, Leon Spieler. So what I did really was I learned the Berlin School of Playing in Amherst, Massachusetts when I was a kid. And I tell you, it was an incredible feeling. The first time I played in Berlin and, and everything, you know, I was looking around, it's like everyone was playing the way I was playing. Wow. And then they said to me, well, you play like us. <laughs> well, how did that happen? <laughs> you know? So it was an incredible feeling of just immediate identification that, that I'd found the right place. That is a beautiful story and so poetic. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you found home yeah. is just beautiful. <laughs> what about the audiences? What are they like in your hometown? And do you have sort of almost a following, for example, for the New York Phil? Is there a type of audience that, that is your home audience? And how do people receive you in the rest of the world? <laughs> our our audiences are loud and oh. <laughs> at all the wrong times. Sometimes we love our, our New York audiences. Um, I don't know if this is like a, a meme everywhere, but I feel like New York audiences have always brought in like a plastic shopping bag full of cough drops to every concert and they never turn off their phone and they're not afraid to get up and leave in a piece that they don't like or to not stay for the applause because they've got to get to the parking garage and get their car. But we love them. But we're always, we're always struck when we tour that the audiences are very different in Asia. It's sort of the like the very deep listening that you hear and the deep engagement in a different way from the audience. It's very it's very palpable. So our New York audiences are extremely engaged, but they also make themselves known, <laughs> I think, at, at all times. So it's very fun for us. You definitely notice based on, on the repertoire that the audience changes as well in New York from night to night and, and from week to week, kind of based on what we're playing, which is which is really fascinating. And I've, I've noticed our audiences starting to skew much younger, which is, oh. which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I was just going to quickly say, um, we did a concert 
with Vladimir Yurovsky in America. I can't remember which city, but yeah. we were playing Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, the Pathétique, and yeah. there's a very sort of boisterous third movement. There's a huge crescendo at the end, to, sounds sort of triumphant, and and then there's this sort of really heartfelt, tragic ending for the fourth movement. And before the concert started, Vlad explained to the audience that, you know, his thinking behind that and that he would really appreciate it if nobody <laughs> clapped after the the end of the third movement. And then, uh, so we got to performing it, uh, finished the third movement. Yeah! <laughs> and which... Um, that was not the mood he was going for. <laughs> he, <laughs> He, he was clearly in a bad mood oh, yes, conducting the, the, the fourth movement then. Um. Yeah, it's interesting you reference um, Tchaikovsky Symphony 6 because that was my first piece that I watched of the Berlin Philharmonic on virtual, the virtual stage. And there was 10 minutes of applause at the end hmm. of the piece and sweat dripping down and it was just that moment was held. 10 minutes of applause. I mean, is that a normal occurrence, Matthew, to have the audience just really in it and just loving everything that the orchestra's done? You know, it's just another day at the office, Yolanda. It's a hard life, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Well, to be quite honest, we we very often have that kind of response. Wow. Certainly it's not after every concert, but there are those moments when things go on and on and on. We have a tradition that... You know, at some point, the orchestra, you know, we look at the concert master and he just makes a sign and we leave the stage. The audience keeps applauding. And he has to and, come. And the conductor keeps coming out. That was what and, I was watching, yes. Yeah, coming out, going back, coming out, going back. We had one time with Evgeny Kissin who came out and did 10 encores. I think he was there for maybe 40 minutes after the orchestra left. <laughs> so, I mean, the end of the show isn't the end of the show. What is it that the audience is taking away from these performances then that really provokes that reaction? I think that music is transactional analysis. Mm. And I think that we are involved with our audience in a, in a deep psychological way. And I think that there's transference that yeah. definitely takes place. And I think that people can be healed by music, can be healed by a concert. And and we certainly are changed people after such an experience. Mm. So, I mean, when the orchestra brings all of its intensity and all of its energy and focuses at the center of that hall, that's an incredible burst of spiritual mojo. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that really people need it and people soak it up and they are changed. Yes. And that is why there's a feeling of release and relief after the concert. It just It's just bursting out of their souls. Just reflecting on that, I think in the UK, you, you know when you've done a really good job, I think, because then it's quite rare to get a standing ovation, I think, in the festival hall. And, and when you get one, you know that something special happened and they loved the conductor and the orchestra and what, what we were doing that night. I did want to take this time, actually, to see if any of you wanted to ask each other a question about your orchestras. Was there ever something that you wanted to ask from a musician perspective uh, about any other orchestra? What are the um, sort of silly jokes that happen in rehearsals (laughs) for you guys? Like a really stupid example of like, 
if a conductor goes, let's go from figure T, everyone will stamp their foot as if to go and make or <laughs> go, and, go and have a cup of tea. And it's, I mean, that's just a really, you know, silly like one. That. And that I think pretty much every orchestra in the UK does that. But um, I wonder if there's a s- sort of similar thing with you guys or not. Or is it all too serious? No, I mean, come on, we're a big kindergarten. Um, <laughs> every, every time Kirill says pausa, which means mm. pause, people stomp their feet like we're going to go and take a break. Ah, clever. Yeah, okay. There we go. <laughs> is there anything over at the New York field that you can share? There's definitely little jokes that happen in the brass section that probably aren't funny outside of anything. Um, like if things are getting like a little a little off kilter, you know, in the rehearsal or things are the the second horn sitting next to me will, will like grab onto the stand, like holding on for dear life kind of thing, which is very funny. But um, and I, I don't know if you all are familiar. There's a classic Saturday Night Live skit um, with Christopher Walken where he's asking for more cowbell. And so whenever we're playing like a Mahler three or anything with the Almglocken, and we're just waiting. We're just waiting for that moment when the conductor, in all seriousness, is going to ask for more cowbell off stage. Which and it's happened. It's happened more than once. So, does anyone ever, um, if there's a big cowbell moment, yeah. uh, presumably someone in the orchestra will start making farmyard noises? Oh, or? absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. if something is, you know, extremely pastoral, we've got our percussionist making bird sounds in the back and, and everything, <laughs> you know, to go along with with the music. Absolutely. Yeah. Sheep noises. All that, yeah, moving. I love that. Sure. Great question, Seb. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> One of my um, other questions, and you did touch on this earlier, um, Leelani, was the repertoire. There mm-hmm. is sort of a standard repertoire that all philharmonic orchestras will play. Um, is there anything different? Maybe you could just say one piece that your orchestras do a little bit different to others. Well, I would say we do the symphonic dances from West Side Story so much. Ah. <laughs> that is kind of like one of our pieces. Of, of course, Leonard Bernstein, who wrote all the music for West Side Story, was our music director. And, and still in, in many ways, you know, um, we all call him Lenny. Of course, <laughs> most of the orchestra at this point never met him or never worked with Lenny, but he's still very much in the in the ethos of the, of the orchestra. And um, whenever... I play, we play that piece. I mean, I just feel like this is, this is in the orchestra's DNA. It's always amazing to me how quickly it just comes together. Like we could do it in our sleep. Beautiful. Matthew, what about for the Berlin Philharmonic? I suppose that there are a lot of works that having played with the Berlin Phil, I don't want to hear them played by anyone else. And that doesn't mean that I feel we own the music. It's just that I feel so closely identified with the way we play the symphonies of Bruckner or Brahms, Mm. um, Schumann, Mandelson, Beethoven. There's a a particular sound that we make, especially like a a Bruckner 8 or a Bruckner 9 that we just did with Zubin Mehta. It just reaches so deep. So, I mean, I really strongly identify with that repertoire, tone poems of Richard Strauss, of course, and a lot of the Wagner uh, that we've played there's a, a dark heaviness in the sound that I think is very much like the, the Alt-Berliner character. And Seb, what does the LPO do so well that's sort of inherent in them? Well, I think they definitely used to be known as the sort of the German London orchestra. We used to, <laughs> before my time, they used to, because they had um, Tenstedt as the chief conductor, they were kind of known for their Mahler and Brahms. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't dream of 
competing with the Berlin Philharmonic <laughs> with, with, with Germanic music. But more recently, I think we're probably known for uh, our ability to sort of accompany because we work at Glyndebourne for four months of the year. Um, so operatic repertoires in our sort of DNA. I think we're, you know, super adaptable. And then obviously it depends on uh, who the chief conductor is. So we've, we've had 10 years of Vladimir Yurovsky. So mm. we've done an awful lot of um, Tchaikovsky. He really knows that music and knows how to get the best out of us. So Oh, brilliant. Well, no, thank you all so much for sharing your experiences, finding the commonalities and the differences and celebrating all of them. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear your journeys and to hear about your home orchestras. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yolanda. Thank you. Thank you, Yolanda. Cheers. That's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to LPO's Sebastian Penner, Leelani Sterrett in New York and Matthew Hunter in Berlin as they shared their musical experiences of three orchestras many miles apart. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. And thanks so much for listening. See you for the next episode of LPO Offstage, all about programming an LPO season. How does that work? 